Hey everybody, welcome to TCP Talks with Jonathan Baker and Justin Broadley from The Cloud Pod. In this series, we're bringing you interviews with the best and brightest leaders and heroes from the tech and cloud industry. Welcome back, Josh. Glad to have you back on the show once again. Uh, for those of our listeners who uh, who caught us caught you last time you were with us, uh, and for our new listeners, maybe you want to refresh everyone uh, who you are and what you guys do with Fugue. Sure. Well, it's great to be back on uh, the podcast. So uh, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, my name is Josh Stella. I'm the uh, co-founder and CEO of Fugue. And at Fugue, we do uh, cloud security software. So my background, I'm a very CTO-leaning CEO. My background is in software architecture and development for longer than I'd like to admit. Uh, a lot of national security stuff, a lot of high tech. I was at AWS uh, just before founding Few. So glad to and last, be here. I, last time you were with us, you were still the CTO. So that's a recent change then from the CEO world. Uh, yeah, so it was in December of uh, last year that we made the transition for uh, uh, for me to be a CEO. We, we actually don't officially have a CTO right now. I'm kind of wearing both hats a little bit. But... Um, yeah, we hired a, 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 a really great executive named David Mitchell to run the go-to-market side, and, and I've uh, occupied the CEO seat. So, and it's it's been an awesome year for us. That's awesome. Well, I mean, it, it has been quite a year. You, were, you last joined us in May 2020, uh, where you shared with us, you know, the results of the State of Cloud, a Security Cloud. Uh, report that you guys did, and that was almost a hundred years ago uh, with COVID <laughs> factored into that. And you know. Yes. And I think last time we talked, we talked a lot about the rapid move to remote work, the challenges companies were having with that area, and, and that was what you were seeing a lot of in the survey at the time. Uh, I'm sure that, you know, as you continue to look at the trends of the survey, uh, where are the, you know, what are the big highlights for you? What are the big improvements or the things getting worse uh, from the survey data that you saw in 2021 uh, that you didn't sure. see in 2020? Sure. So just a little bit on the survey itself, but so folks have some context. We do this every year. And this one we did in coordination with Sonatype, who are a partner of ours. Uh, we uh, have a product we work on together. And the, we do this survey of 300 uh, organizations that are using cloud at scale. And, you know, at scale is kind of a hand-wavy term. But we typically mean, you know, thousands and thousands of compute instances or containers or whatnot. And so the data is all from uh, from those folks, and it's not about Fugue, it's about uh, security in general. So the general theme for me this year uh, was that people are, <laughs> I'm starting to agree with them more, or maybe they're starting to agree with me more, whether they've ever heard from me or not. Um, the number one service for concern about misconfiguration for the first time in our survey is IAM. And uh, that is what it should be, in my opinion. Uh, so I think that what we're seeing is the market getting more sophisticated about the threats and uh, also starting to really come to grips with the scale of the problem. So uh, if you look at our uh, teams, uh, you know, half of the teams were experiencing 50 or more 
cloud misconfigurations daily. And some of them up in the, you know, more than a thousand daily range. So, so people are, are think, wrestling with the scale. They're getting smarter about where the risks lie. Um, I don't think yet they have fully embraced automation because you still get uh, respondents saying that this can be solved with training or that this, can, this is a human knowledge problem. And it's, it's, it's really a tooling and automation problem in my views. Yeah, I was actually a little bit stunned with some of the numbers that you guys had in the reports. Uh, you know, of course, first of all, Gartner has been saying for a few years now that you know by 2023, at least 99% of the cloud security failures uh, will be the customer's fault, uh, mainly in the form of cloud resource misconfiguration. But then, you know, going into the survey results you shared, uh, you know, you said 36% of the response in the survey suffered a cloud security leak or breach in the past year, and 49% of the teams experienced 50 plus misconfigurations per day. I mean, that's that's a big number, both of those. <laughs> and, you know, and I know it's it's a pretty healthy uh, number of respondents to the survey, so that's it's not a small fraction of them. No, we feel good about the sample size. You know, we feel good about the kinds of organizations that we're reaching out to. We hire a company uh, to find these. Obviously, we work on the, the questions, uh, but uh, to really find a, a good cross-section. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been aware at some for some time from just, you know, what I do for a living, which is uh, for a decade now, cloud security, um, that there are constant misconfigurations taking place in these, uh, you know, accounts that are at scale. And so, you know, I'm not talking about necessarily our customers in particular, but back at AWS when I was there and and a lot of uh, folks that I talked to, Fugue now manages uh, millions of cloud assets for our customers. And when you have, uh, you know, one of our uh, uh, best partnerships is and with with the customers with Red Ventures. If you're familiar with Red Ventures, uh, they own CNET now. Uh, they're a big uh, a big publisher, and they have a lot of cloud infrastructure. So when you when you see these uh, these results, you can imagine if you have dozens of application teams or even hundreds, and uh, they're all able to modify infrastructure. If you don't have automation out there to help them do that, uh, and we recommend that be through analysis of infrastructure as code templates, things like Terraform and CloudFormation. Uh, we have an open source project out there that's very popular called Regula that will check your templates for security issues. And of course, we have a commercial offering there too and then also monitor the runtime, you're going to end up with a lot of these misconfigurations because it's impossible for teams to memorize everything that's dangerous. What do you mean by misconfiguration in this context? Is it is it an instance of a, of a bad misconfiguration or is it sort of, if you think about like the, the ITIL problem management versus incident management, is it, is, is it an instance of a misconfiguration or is it a particular type of misconfiguration that's happening? Uh, it, it is an instance of a type. So if the type is, for example, uh, that you should not have S3 list permissions attached to the IAM privileges of a running compute instance in an internet-exposed environment, which is one that we put into Fugue as something you should not do, misconfiguration, 
that as as the, as the class, if you will, is uh, anything that meets those criteria. But it's very important to know exactly where the instance of those misconfigurations. Now, one big difference between cloud era hacking and kind of data center era hacking is that um, one of the common things you'll you'll find out as you investigate particular breaches how long it took the victims to be aware of it and how they became aware uh, is often much longer and uh, often through things like social media or tips. So you really can't manage cloud security from an like, actual security incident perspective. You have to be uh, preventative and be aware of these misconfigurations before the hackers exploit them. Yeah, that's interesting. Thanks for clarifying that. I know we talked a lot last time about this lateral movement that you can get from seemingly innocuous uh, IAM permissions. Like, we, we, once, you, once you have a discovery, you can just sort of spider off into all different kinds of services. It's, it's, um, it's a huge risk. And to think that even now there are read-only policies which only give you read access to, uh, to the entire suite of services in AWS is, is really quite scary. Um, I do hope they walk things like that back at some point. There's a lot of things I wish that the cloud providers would do differently from a security perspective. Uh, of course, you know, security is a high priority for them, I'm sure, but so is adoption. And um, adoption means lower, lowering the learning curve. But yeah, I mean, hacking is 90% discovery, right? It's 90% investigation or more. And honestly, security is 90% knowledge, is, is knowing what to do and knowing what's dangerous. And so, uh, you know, I think in, in the survey, I thought it was kind of interesting to see uh, with uh, 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 defining cloud security policies, a greater number of organizations now, this is new, uh, this year 66% say the engineering department defines cloud policy versus 55% saying security. Obviously, these are not exclusive. These are you know, you can answer more than one category. We're seeing that in the field quite a bit too, where the engineering teams, the DevOps teams move so fast now. And this is part of the reason for that large number of misconfigurations that you'll see on a daily basis in the survey. They're moving so fast that it's really hard for traditional security teams to keep up. And so uh, we're seeing a ton of movement of uh, not just security policy, but, but security tooling into the development uh, uh, tool chain, which is, I, I believe, where it, where it really belongs. Yeah, you know, it was interesting when I, I saw those stats, too. I actually haven't heard my notes, the 60% of cloud policy defined by engineering. I was also impressed that, you know, audits and enforces the cloud policy also was pretty high for engineering because, uh, you know, if you're codifying that work, you're putting into the CICD pipeline, as you said, shift left, shift left. Uh, you know, that all needs to be addressed at runtime. So it should be engineering also enforcing and auditing themselves at some level, but then, of course, a double check by security and or compliance on top of that. But um, it was good to see. That was I was pretty happy with those numbers and climbing to that level because I've been a long believer in that engineering really needs to find the cloud policy and, and get it blessed by the right people. But, you know, if it's being dictated by security or by worse outside consultants, uh, it's never a good situation at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I mean, I think that, so a couple of thoughts on that. One is shifting left alone isn't good enough. What you really need is consistency throughout the entire SCLC. 
though, where we have had security tooling being pointed only at the kind of right end of the SDLC with things like regular and infrastructures code checking and dev environment checking. We're sh we, we are adding the left parts of the SDLC, but you still need the right parts as well, or the right-hand side parts, uh, to monitor the runtime because this stuff is all mutable. So, or most of it is mutable. It is effectively all mutable. Um, so when I when I talk to folks and say, "Hey, we're scanning our Terraform, so we're safe," I say, "No, you're you're absolutely not. Uh, you're going to catch some stuff there, but once it's been deployed, uh, things you know continue to mutate, lots of ways, and ways that you don't believe are happening typically via policy." And I've had people say all of our changes go through the CI/CD pipeline. I'm just, I don't, I've never seen that actually happen. There's always manual intervention. Yeah, it's the holy grail until something's down and the CEO's screaming on the phone <laughs> that you know, this needs to get back up and running. And you're like, well, I could do the CI/CD pipeline, or I could just fix it in the console in five seconds and, and be done with this problem. Or, know, or break it in the console too, right? Like, I mean, there's, there's. And just, you know, uh, in, in a panic to get things done, try things. I mean, that's kind of common for people to try things when they're trying to fix things. And then forget yeah. exactly what they did. Yeah. I was actually surprised, because uh, I think in the, in the survey it mentions that 47% of teams analyze their security by reviewing cloud provider logs uh, to identify dangerous drift events and misconfigurations. Which, you know, when I think about that Temple of CloudTrail, knowing that, A, CloudTrail isn't fully covering all products, and number two, it's also oftentimes, sometimes, you know, multiple hours delayed, uh, you know, I, I just kind of find it believing, you know, hard to believe that that's how people are going out there and doing their, you know, their auditing. Uh, and then, you know, the uh, 30, worse than that, though, is the 35% who rely on manual audits, which is fine when you have one account. It's not so great when I have 190 accounts. Uh, yeah, or, 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 I mean... We have customers with over a thousand cloud accounts across multiple providers, and so the ability to, to look at all of that uh, together is incredibly important. Yeah, so CloudTrail, you're you're so right, and and uh, this has annoyed me for a few years now. We have, uh, I'll just say, there are other companies in the cloud security space that refer to CloudTrail as real-time events, and I'm like, no, <laughs> they are not. They I, I've had events come the next day on occasion, and they're not guaranteed to be sequential. You know, often they are they show up in a few seconds, but I mean, often, very often it's minutes, and it can, as you say, be hours. And so, um, it, you cannot view cloud logs of any sort as the definitive record of the configuration state of the cloud infrastructure for lots of reasons. It is inadequate. It's useful to track those things, but you have to be able to examine the actual environment as it's running and not try to infer from a series of events over time what its current state is. If you really want to know what's going on. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why tools like Fugue and others have come up with you know, cloud security posture management is really the answer to this problem. And and I, I imagine it's a combination of lots of different things, APIs of actually what the state is. You know, logging is probably a factor in it as well. But, you know, you guys can take a very cohesive view of what it looks like and, and pull that together. Yeah, well, well, knowledge implies cipherability, right? Information is one thing. 
if you have a if you have a, a hierarchy of data, then information, which is like meaningful data, and then knowledge, which is uh, human beings being aware in a contextually relevant way of what's going on. Uh, to have knowledge of a system, uh, you can't just have a list of things. You you have to understand it as a system. And so we work very very hard to give people presentations of this information about their cloud, whether it's our visualizations or, or other things that that contextualize it, that make it decipherable. So in the report, you mentioned that um, Gartner says in 2023, at least 99% of cloud security failures will be the customer's fault, mainly in the form of resource misconfiguration. I mean, in light of what you just said with regards to you know needing data to make these decisions on to decide whether or not you're in a, you're in a good state or not, are there still gaps? Uh, are there, are there, is there some missing information that the hyperscalers aren't giving people so they can actually be effective in solving security in the cloud? Well, I think that um, in any domain of human knowledge, there are always gaps, right? I mean, that, that's, a, that's just the reality of, uh, of the world we live in. Um, I would argue that the, the, the definition of a, of a gap in cloud security is something that hackers are doing, have knowledge to do and are doing, that you either don't have the information to know or don't have the knowledge to know it's wrong. So I see in the, in the cloud, um, you actually have more information access than ever before. You know, the fact that we have these APIs that we can interrogate things with consistently. I mean, I remember working in national security environments where we would get uh, so-called data calls on the state of systems and we'd fill out Excel spreadsheets for a week. You know, now we can interrogate some APIs and we know what it really is. I mean, you've got eventual consistency issues and such, but but for the most part, there's more information available now. But what what I see, what we see at Feud, is um, the, the 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 weak links are um, two things. One is connecting dots that um, in context are dangerous. So uh, a lot of things uh, are individually safe. You know, an individual resource might be fine, but that resource's relationship to other resources in the cloud make it dangerous. Um, almost, We're not aware of anyone else who looks for those things, and yet that's where like 90% of this stuff is, is problematic. Uh, and the other thing is just the hackers are clever, and so you have to keep up. Um, you know, they, they are... I, I have yet to see... I, I read that 99% number as... We believe this is all that's going to be happening, but we have to give ourselves a 1% out in case something else happens. And that's what we see, right? If you read the Department of Justice complaints in all these, in the Uber breaches, in the Imperva breach, in the Capital One breach, in the, oh, I'm uh, oh, thinking of a, there was a more recent one. They're all misconfiguration. And none of them are simple misconfiguration in the form of, like, one resource was misconfigured. It's a chain. So I, I think the cloud providers provide enough information. I think the human knowledge of the domain is imperfect and always improving. Yeah. yeah you know, this is a good segue to a recent Azure issue we talked about on the show. Um, 
you know, there's the, the vast number of services and technologies that AWS and Azure and Google are releasing on a weekly basis. You know, we, we have a, cl- a whole podcast dedicated to nothing but talking about what they announce every week. And we fill 50 to 65 minutes every week of content. Uh, and, you know, so there, there's that challenge of knowing what's going out there. Uh, but then, you know, this chaos DB vulnerability that happened to Azure Cosmos uh, a couple weeks ago, you know, they actually enable a new feature using Jupyter Notebooks, and they do it in a way that isn't secure. And now, the you know, the customer has to now go change keys and do these things because Azure's mistake in the design process. So, you know, is it actually going to get a little bit more dangerous, too? Because this proliferation of features and technology, how do I keep ahead of that, know that I have the compliance automation, and then also trust my cloud vendor? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, until uh, about a month ago, I... I would have said with a lot of confidence that the cloud vendors can, generally speaking, really be trusted. Um, I think they've historically done a very good job. Um, that, I mean, I'm not going to use any profanity, but wow, right? <laughs> yeah, we, we were <laughs> very I, shocked too on it, to be honest. <laughs> like, are you kidding? Um, and, and what? What made me feel that way was was less that that something with a vulnerability got introduced, and more that the kind of blast radius analysis clearly was inadequate, because the blast radius of that was nasty in a multi-tenant system. I mean, people are already nervous about multi-tenancy. I was just answering questions on that yesterday, uh, and very often you can say, well, you know, there's a history of of folks doing a good job with it. Well, that that makes it harder to say that. Yeah, it undermines our trust in the cloud in general, I think, regardless of whether it was Microsoft or Google or uh, AWS who, who made a mistake. It just undermines, it, it casts doubt on, on the process that, that the providers are following. And I think it's going to, um, hopefully, it, it will change the way new features are introduced. I, I really I've always disliked new features being added and, and already being included in the existing scope of IAM. It should always be a new switch to turn it on, in my opinion, so that you can test things and make sure that things don't get turned on without you realizing. Absolutely. Uh, I've never worked at Microsoft or at Google. Okay. And, uh, and you know, obviously anything that I'm aware of that is proprietary information to Amazon, even though it's been a while, I, I wouldn't I would share. Clearly, in this kind of land grab that's going on, right, the, the future of computing is defined by these clouds. I hope I didn't already use this quip with you guys, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the CEO of IBM in the 40s, Watson, uh, there, there's a, an anecdote that he said the market, the global market for computers is, is probably five. And I think he was uh, strangely prescient in that you're going to have the big distributed Amazon computer, the big distributed Microsoft computer. Uh, I mean, there's there'll probably be a lunar S3 region at some point in our distant future. This stuff is, is a huge land grab for the future of how computing is done. And um, it's the biggest change in computing since any uh, in terms of like how computing gets done. So there is, I think, a natural tendency to... to uh, to grab the land, and if you do that too quickly, you know, and make a mistake, uh, I don't think there's a full appreciation yet, apparently, for just how, again, how large the blast radius is. 
Um, now, at the same time, if you look at the last year, at the specifically the attacks that only worked on systems that were not cloud, like running your own exchange server, right? They're probably much worse in terms of real effect. So I think the novelty of this being a cloud service provider error uh, is probably, uh, you know, it, it, it's a bit of an unfair uh, level of comparison. But, I mean, I'm not going to defend it. It was nasty. <laughs> yeah. I, I, and it was one of those features that didn't have to be turned on. You know, you, you exposed your customers for a feature that you didn't need to turn on by default. Uh, that was the worst part about it in my mind. I mean, everyone knows if you've been in software that it's, you know, bugs and defects and security vulnerabilities happen and you fix them and you respond well to them. But yeah, this is just, this is just a nasty one in particular. Well, uh, you know, back to, you know, Jonathan, you had mentioned something that you, you wished uh, that uh, uh, less liberties were taken with changing the behavior of things in cloud as new features roll out that could introduce additional exposure. And, um, as you were, as you were saying that, it, it occurred to me. I also wish cloud service providers would name things accurate, particularly <laughs> things like block public access, which does not do that, right? It, it's like block all humans access, but half of the planet can get here. It's it's okay, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, arbitrary number of cider blocks of whatever size you like. So. But I'll talk to people, and they say, "Hey, my S3 is okay. We've got blocked public access." Uh, yes, to be to be young and, and new to S3, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a good thing to turn on, but it, it's, no, it's not great. like yeah. you've blocked public access now. You, you, you maybe, yeah, maybe if you didn't do twelve other things that could make it public. So, yeah, it's you know it's it's interesting because this this Azure issue and. You know, we, we talk a lot on the podcast about you know, needing to understand the architecture of your system and understanding the design principles that go into it. And we talk a lot about Amazon being very region agnostic, that you know, they don't like things that cross regions. And then you compare that to Google, who's you know, massive, single control plane, you know, single storage tier. You know, and the, there's advantages and disadvantages to both those approaches. But you know, when you talk about that blast radius of a security thing, if you know if a security issue happens in the Google control plane, it's a massive impact uh, to the entire Google Cloud. Whereas in Amazon space, you know how they do rollout, you may limit the you know, impact to a single region. But you know that's going to be a bigger factor in all these security conversations. Is what's the security principles these companies design on? And I think that's an area that they need to get a little bit more transparent about because I very clearly know how Amazon thinks about uh, control tier. I know very clearly how Google does. I don't know how they think about security as much. It's an interesting point. Um, I, I remember a number of uh, sessions uh, that we would set up with, uh, you know big customers or prospects with, you know, Steve Schmidt back in the day at AWS, who was the the top security guy, people would leave those meetings, uh, which were all NDA, uh, with a a lot of uh, uh, confidence, you know, because they are very good at this stuff over at AWS. I can can say that. Um, I think that one of the changes that's happening in, in computing security because of the cloud is more of security is architectural now, right? So if, for example, you have a multi-tenant system and you require 
your customers to have separate keys or even keys that they manage so that you don't have access to that data, that's an architectural decision, but it has tremendous blast radius implications to what a breach might do. Uh, we were, uh, in our system, runs largely in Lambda, and which is great for lots of reasons. Uh, one of the things our engineers figured out, though, is uh, you can get uh, you know more than one execution on the same Lambda instance. You know, it's a container behind the scenes, or it's Amazon's version of a container, which is, I believe, a very very fast virtual machine. But um, but anyway, you can get you know sequential executions on it, and if you're storing anything in, in local memory or cache, that can reside across that transaction boundary. And so, uh, and, and you can't really directly control that. So that's another architectural issue, that how the system is designed is profoundly important to how secure it is. And in our case, we do a lot of work with financial institutions and, you know, uh, folks that care a lot about security and who know a lot about security. And so we, we if we find something like that, we will re-architect a piece of the system. That one we caught before we needed to re-architect. Um, you know, so I, I think that this is why it's so important that security is becoming more of a concern in engineering. Because engineers are the ones who can actually solve these problems. The security team can't solve a fundamental systems architecture problem. The pace of change in technology, though, is tremendous. And it's really only been a handful of years since we've moved from EC2 to containers and then serverless kind of splitting off and then even the, like cloud run or cloud functions from, from Google. Are these technologies helping with security? Are they, are they just introducing new challenges? Uh, do you think we're trending in the right direction? Are these new tools being built with, with better security in mind in general? Where, where do you think we're kind of going? Okay, so if we compare the three, and maybe I'm being too literal and pedantic, but uh, the virtual machines, we have a lot of experience and a lot of uh, kind of uh, infrastructure and tooling for those things to be secure. So there's hardware level isolation of virtual machines uh, in, in modern server architecture. Uh, so there you can be pretty confident that, for example, just the multi-tenant issue uh, is, is not uh, super relevant, especially with the, the hypervisors that the CSPs run are, tend to be like really feature limited compared to what you would see in a, in a data center, just to avoid cross-tenant attack vectors. I would argue that serverless, or air quote serverless, right, which is really ephemeral container uh, under the hood. Or, or, or similar, right? Uh, it's hard to know with, with Amazon if everything is actually one of their uh, super light virtual machines or if they're actually ever using Linux containers. I don't know the answer. Uh, I suspect they're not using actual Linux containers, uh, but instead using hyperlight VMs for the hardware isolation that I was describing, but maybe. So I think Lambda and, and serverless uh, is a huge win from a security perspective for developers and engineers. But so much of the problem is not yours. And the mechanisms by which they talk to each other are completely visible and, and understandable. I actually think containers, especially as implemented in big Kubernetes clusters with 
all kinds of complexity are the toughest thing to secure. Um, I think virtual machines were easier. I think lambdas are awesome, but I've seen a lot of really scary stuff in the Kubernetes world. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, Kubernetes definitely does not uh, simple, and Kubernetes are not you know the same in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. Uh, which you know, which is interesting because you you mentioned that and talk about cloud security and the cloud security posture. The the reality is that all the cloud providers are moving to you know GKE anywhere or uh, sorry ECS and EKS anywhere. You've got uh, Anthos from GCP. You've got AKS from Azure. They all want to run their Kubernetes on top of your other cloud or your private cloud. And now I'm actually exposing the cloud control you know cloud person's control plane into my data center or into another cloud. And how does that change the security perspective? Because now. I'm now relying on not only securing AWS, but I also have to secure, you know, Anthos potentially and GCP to make sure I have the right coverage. And do they conflict with each other? Yeah. Look, I mean, uh, when I when <laughs> when I was uh, uh, young and perhaps uh, more enthusiastic about getting down close to the wire and hardware, although I, I was doing a little assembler over the weekend for for fun, I still like to play with it. I used to love to spelunk operating systems, Unix operating systems in particular, and it was just a blast, you know, to read source code, to to really understand at a low level. I would uh, kind of foolishly tweak things, maybe more than they needed tweaking on old sunboxes and things like that. Now, I don't want to touch an operating system or infrastructure at all. I only want to write business logic. And I want to uh, outsource, you know, to offload with contractual and uh, technical obligations as much of that complexity as I can. Because, um, you know, if, if, you, if you look at what we're doing right now as an industry with this, you know, new stack, if you will, it is, it is stunningly complex. And... What that means is, and it, well, it's both stunningly complex and many of the layers are, are newer, new-ish, um, have not had, uh, you know, every, all the issues really shaken out and, and, and dominant designs to, to say, here's the right way to do things and here's the wrong way to do things. And, and that just, to me, means they're going to be, from a security perspective, somewhat houses of cards. And... If you don't understand, what do hackers do? Hackers look for little things you forgot. They look for little nooks and crannies, and then they work from there. So, um, yeah, I'm not a... I think the pace of technology is one thing, but perhaps our judgment and pace in technology is, is, is not improving. It's interesting because you actually had an, one of the survey results going back to the survey was you know, respondents talking about tooling and, and what gaps there are in tooling. And, you know, in one way, I'm sure it's somewhat frustrating to you as you know, a company that makes tools that are in this exact space. <laughs> but on the other side, you know, it's surprising how many, comp- you know, how many people were above the 28 to 35 percent mark where they're saying, you know, they're looking for tools or looking for better security tools or looking for better visibility. They're looking for better audit capabilities. I mean, that's a pretty significant challenge when coupled with what you just said. What we offer, and I think any good software vendor offers, is 
to help you deal with that complexity. Uh, we're domain experts. And so in our area, um, we, we can recommend, uh, uh, you know, what works and what doesn't work or what's dangerous and not. Um, so, you know, and I think, I think all vendors should do that. I think some do it more and some do it less. Uh, you know, how many sharp edges are on these things? And, and I'm not going to, you know, pick out any, any, uh, anyone I, I don't like, but, uh, or I think does poorly there, but I, I think that's the, the obligation, right? If, if we as a software vendor who are domain experts in cloud security can't make your job a lot easier through tooling, then we're not doing our job. And I think of it, we were talking earlier about, you know, security moving to engineering. I view security as just part of correctness. Uh, you know, is, does a system do what functions it was intended to do accurately? Security is one form of bug, in other words. And so the tooling should work like that, like a debugger. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I, I agree with you <laughs> completely that you know it's a debugger, it's a it's a visualization layer, uh, you know. But yeah, you know, I always wonder when these harder questions like how much of this is is caused by tool sprawl, particularly in the cloud or in security in general, not just cloud security, but in security in general, like there is a ton of tools, very point solutions. I can buy a UBA solution. I can buy a different end user BA solution. I can, you know, buy an IDS here. I can buy an IPS. There's so much proliferation of tooling and security uh, in particular that I, I find this to be the biggest struggle with security teams and security, you know, when they talk about tools is what's the ROI on these tools and how do they get the best value out of them? And then you have other companies, you know, the big firewall vendors who are consolidating like crazy and buying a ton of things. And then, you know, they're seen as like, well, they're not best of breed. So where where do you kind of come down on the best of breed play versus the commoditization of some of these tools from, you know, how this helps solve this cloud security problem? Sure. So, um, so a lot of categories of security tools are, in my view, I'm an opinionated person, so take this for what it's worth. <laughs> uh, uh, in my view, a lot of these security tool categories are CYA categories. They are not super practical for building safe and secure systems. But if you don't have one and something bad happens, you're going to get fired. So there's a tax you pay both in dollars and in effort to put them in place uh, to, uh, to, to run them. And, you know, that's, a, I guess, a side effect of how computing has evolved from a fundamentally, you know, in, you go back to 1990 mainframes were secure that was it uh you know so so we've been layering on security and therefore there's lots of layers one beautiful thing about the cloud is you know gartner's statement says a lot 99 percent of breaches will be due to misconfiguration of cloud resources that is the problem in cloud. It's not TCP IP networking security. It's not operating system security. You still need some of that, but that's not what the hackers are going for. They're going for API control plane exploitation using stolen keys or other similar kinds of attacks. So cloud actually should, in my view, simplify that landscape. So instead of having a, uh, a, a big, uh, you know, we'll buy nine companies and barely integrate them and here's a big wad of stuff 
you know, if you go after the actual hard part of the problem, uh, which is I, I certainly our philosophy, um, it doesn't have to be sprawling. It just has to be, you have to actually tackle the hard part. Uh, so I think clouds, that's why I, I founded the company and I left AWS. It's for the first, I'm not a security analyst background. I'm a programmer. I'm an engineer. Uh, wow, we can actually build secure systems because we have API service. So, and we can use computer science to do it. So, so that's my view of this. Is, and I think you see companies like Sneak that are doing a pretty good job of saying, you know what, the, the engineers and the developers are, are, are the, where we're going to solve this problem. Fugue is taking a, you know, well, we predate them, but we've always had that opinion as well. So how do you, how do you speak to somebody in information security to convince them to let go of a tool they've had for years? I think this is, this is one of my big challenges is that they have this relatively large budget to spend on tools, um, and it's kind of like the airport security problem. You know, we're still taking our shoes off after 20 years. We still have f- full body scans. And I, I don't see any of that technology ever going away again. There'll never be a, a roll back to a previous state of, of uh, sort of less heightened awareness. And in a way, I think it's a problem because it's, um, it's very expensive. It continues to become expensive. And the cost of adoption for cloud or, in fact, any compute in general is just becoming more and more expensive because of the security problem. So how, how do you argue to say you don't need that thing anymore? We've got you covered some other way. Yeah, I, I don't. We don't tend to make that argument too much. We let people draw their own conclusions. That's my opinion. Um, I think that that will change because the well, for example, I'll go back to my favorite implementation pattern right now, which are which are functions as a service. Uh, from I mean, all three of the cloud providers have good versions of this. You know, uh, Lambda, Cloud Functions, etc. Well, there's no operating system. I mean, we, we, it was funny. We had our SOC 2 auditor out to do our SOC 2 audit. We're SOC 2 you know, certified. And they said, well, how do you patch your operating system? And we said, well, we don't have any operating system. So we don't patch it. And they said, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, that, that cannot be right. And so, so I think these, this, is, this is one of my criteria for, for looking at these new technologies, not security technologies. But uh, uh, cloud architecture and saying, you know, ha- uh, if, if I have less attack surface that I'm responsible for, I need less tools and I need less complexity and I need a team that doesn't know as much about as many things. So I suspect that you're right. The uh, full body scanners and the taking shoes off will continue if you're running operating systems and, and hooking up TCP IP networks for your information flows, but I think if you're doing uh, functions as a service and using uh, identities as your network, you're probably at a place where, you know, where do you put up an IDS? Mm-hmm. That's good to hear, actually. That's good to hear. It's, it's good. It's good to think that the might of technology will eventually kind of force the deprecation of these things and force a rethink into what, what we really need for security. So... Um, what do you hope is going to change over the next 12 months? It's good to look back at what's, what's just happened, but what do you think is going to change over the next 12 months in terms of... Which number in the survey do you hope changes the most? Right. <laughs> well, selfishly, um, <laughs> selfishly, <laughs> I hope that uh, more people realize that rolling your own security tools or patching together uh, the, the point offerings the CSPs have is really, 
is not adequate. Um, and that's both selfish and I honestly believe that's why I started a company. Um, I think the thing I would most like to see a change in is the attitude that security problems are because people are screwing up. That, that there is, you know, when you look at the uh, uh, lack of team awareness of security and policies, have you ever looked at NIST 800-53? It's almost 1,800 controls. I'm aware that it's sitting over there on the shelf like a phone book, but do I, do I know it all? No, and it's unreasonable to think that. I could. Um, I would like people to, to, to be less uh, finger-pointy in general, and more uh, thinking about how to actually solve these problems, which is through computer science and automation, uh, and to embrace that rather than to say, well, if, you know, if, if dumb Josh over there just knew not to, you know, have that particular configuration, we'd be okay, let's send him to, to training. Um, that's never going to solve much. You know, a lot of it's also contextual, and a lot of times, you know, security is very black and white. <laughs> like, you know, and they they write these controls in very, you know, very black and white circumstances, but they don't always work. And and you know, it, it becomes a, to- a problem for the CSP tools as well, because they they're also very black and white. And it's like, well, there's exceptions to everything, and it's it's partially how do you have good exception management to allow those exceptions to occur. Uh, and be tracked in police because that's really the big area when you're looking at risk is how well do I track exceptions, not how well do I meet the standard. Oh, I, I could not agree more. I mean, you know, uh, we've done a lot of work on that in, in our product so that, I mean, there's so many layers. But this is a whole rabbit hole we could go down about like what things should be enforced as policy versus what's guidance versus in, in a large organization, what are what are common standards versus business unit appropriate uh, controls. Um, it's a complex topic and it's it's one that we continue to, 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 to work on as an industry. I've seen it done really well in places and I've, I've seen it done less well. <laughs> uh, you know, he's mentioning the auditor who you had to explain to them that you don't have uh, operating systems anymore, and so you don't need to patch them. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it does really make me happy that you know Amazon finally came out with the Cloud Audit Academy uh, to help teach auditors and assessors. Now it's a little bit of an Amazon bias to it, but uh, you know I appreciate that they're trying, and I wish that all the cloud providers would start really you know providing guidance on how to properly audit their environments and so that their customers get the right benefit. Um, Interestingly enough, uh, Google actually had recently offered some services where if you get their certification, they'll actually insure it um, Mm -hmm. if you go through the process. Do you think that's something that you're going to see more of or we should see more of from cloud providers where they're they're putting more skin in the game and and actually partnering with insurance providers and the, the customer to get the right security posture in place? Or do you think that's maybe a step too far? I think there's a lot more of that going on than most people know. And there has yeah. been for years in terms of uh, indemnification around large cloud contracts. Now, what Google are doing, it sounds like, I'm not familiar with this, are kind of democratizing that a little bit where it's not, you know, a big bank on, on Wall Street saying thou shalt put indemnity to X dollars in this agreement or we won't sign it. Instead, it's more like if you if you do these things, we, we will, uh, in, you know, give you some degree of insurance. Um, I don't think that's a step too far at all, right? I, I, I think that um, 
you know, we're going to end up with a small number of global distributed computers that were primarily how humans compute. The people who run those things should be very accountable to, you know, the proper functioning of them and to helping their customers be safe. So, I mean, obviously, if you look at the, uh, uh, the profitability of AWS, it's, it's a nice business to be in if you're Amazon. So um, I do think that, that there will be more asked of, of cloud providers as we go forward, and I think, I think we should. Good. Well, you know, we're going to link to all of these great survey data so our listeners can check those out uh, and download them from your website. Uh, you know, as you as they think about their journey and kind of heading down this path for you know cloud policy, cloud security, posture management, um, you know, how would you recommend they start as we wrap up here, uh, and where do they go next? Sure. So uh, CSPM is like a Gartner category. I, th- I think what I would think about is the uh, security of your cloud architecture, the security of the system you're building in the cloud. I would recommend. If you're using uh, IAC, if you're using infrastructure as code, the easiest, simplest way to start this. Uh, there's a number of open source projects. Ours is called Regula. It's uh, you know GitHub.com/fugue/fugue/regula, and it will check your templates, whether it's Terraform, CloudFormation. I think we've got uh, Kubernetes in there now as well, and it'll start to give you some guidance. And that's a really easy way, just a local tool. You know, it takes 10 minutes um, to start kind of opening your mind to, uh, you know, what you should be looking for and the kinds of things. Uh, we put a lot of content out on YouTube and other places that's purely educational. It's not sales content. Uh, we do this masterclass series and I'll analyze hacks. I'll talk about um, pen testing in the cloud, different topics. Uh, so, you know, it's like eating any elephant, pick, pick, pick an end, <laughs> start working on it. Well, great. Well, we appreciate you coming back on and sharing with us the, uh, cloud security survey again, and, uh, hopefully we'll have you on again next year and you can tell us about how it's gotten worse or better and hopefully for the better. Let's hopefully for the better. Yeah, I agree. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks. Thank you.